the National Archives podcast series, Cars and Democracy, British Trusteeship of Volkswagen, 1945 to 1949, presented by Dr. Ulrich Gutzmann. Yes, thank you for the possibility of speaking here. It's really a great honor to me and a pleasure to be here. When the British handed over the Volkswagen factory into German hands in October 1949, they had provided the company with a strong foundation for its start into post-war German recovery, a company which soon would play an important international role and would be one of the leading global players some decades later. Even if this success could not have been foreseen in 1949, it's worth the question which part the British played in this and which factors of success were added by them. I come from Volkswagen Corporate History Department. I'm running the archives there. I'm responsible for the archives in Wolfsburg. And um, yeah, besides the archives, I can show you some information. We have been founded in 1997, and now we store about five kilometers of records, um, all archival uh, stuff you can imagine. And um, besides the archives, we have some other um, task, for example, the place of remembrance of former forced labor at the Volkswagen factory with about 4,000 visitors per year. And we answer approximately 3,500 questions per year concerning old cars, historical cars, but also uh, questions concerning company history. We are running three publication series and um, yeah, we also have the, the Volkswagen Chronicle in the internet. So if you have a question concerning Volkswagen history, you might have a first look in the Chronicle. It's only one month that Major General Henderson, uh, the officer commanding uh, the General Officer Commanding British Forces in Germany, Husserimi, visited uh, the archives together with about 70 officers. They were on a tour around Germany, having a look at what the British kind of built up or started in Germany during their uh, time when, when they have been there, and how these things developed. That was really interesting, and um, so th this was the occasion I could try this speech out for the first time. So you can see we still have a strong personal context with Rimi, of course. Some Rimi people are sitting here today and I'm very happy that you came here. And um, when the Rimi Museum, for example, made an exhibition some years ago, we also helped with some documents and it's always good to have to keep these contacts close, I think. And I, I know that also Volkswagen UK has a partnership with Rimi here in Great Britain. Yes, and by the way, the importance of archives can also be seen in this context because Heinrich Nordhoff, the general director of the Volkswagen Werk GmbH and from 1961 on its first chairman of the board of management, created a myth around his person, claiming to have been the one to pull the factory and the company out of post-war mud, reconstructing it and having the whole thing started. This myth was very strong and the British period, the role of Ivan Hurst and others, was nearly forgotten when the archives was founded in 1997. One of its first publications on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of handing over the factory into German hands was a small book, Historical Notes Number no. 2, The British and Their Works, which was pointed at this British role. This book could be overworked and in fact published a second time, as much could have been added when more and more records were open on this period of time. And so in uh, 2011, Changing Lanes Under British Control was published, and both books were written by Markus Luper, a German historian who worked a lot about Volkswagen history. And here you have the presentation of Changing Lanes Under British Control in 2011 in the Lower Saxony State Parliament in Hanover. 
So, uh, and this is the book, and I will leave it here for the library, so you all come back and can read it, of course. <laughs> yes, and um, I would like now to introduce this very interesting time of kind of setting course during the British period at Volkswagen to you, and thus show you an important and exciting chapter of post-war history and of Britons and Germans going together, thus creating a company which can be proud of its root, but makes it strong still today. Let me give you an insight into Volkswagen history, starting from the American Intermezzo, you might call it like this, um, uh, until the handing over into German hands in 1949. In the evening of April 10th, 1945, the American tanks approaching the Stadtes KDF wagons in the North German lowlands were announced by sirens. In the factory near Fallersleben at Mittellandkanal, work stood still as S troops had left and the Volkssturm was on its way to Tangermünde. The Americans immediately started a repair shop in the factory. Rudolf Bröhrmann, the former chief of inspection, was appointed factory manager. Bröhrmann persuaded the Americans to not only repair their cars, but also start to build jeeps from available spare parts. The American order to resume auto production, says Markus Luper in his book, was perhaps the most important act they performed. Otherwise, the factory might have been treated like war booty and also Germans might have plundered it. And so from May, from May 1945 on, under very provisional conditions, production began. About 10 cars left production each day and on May 14th an announcement was made that this number was to be increased and that also production of passenger cars should be taken up. This also had to be for the army at first, but later also for German administrative authorities and even later for private use. The plans were at hand only very short after the end of the war. There were a total number of 133 jeeps for the US Army produced until the region and with it the factory was handed over to the British in June 1945. The British trusteeship um, started in, in June 1945 and now the Control Commission for Germany, British Element, CCGBE, assumed responsibility for the Volkswagen factory. In fact, for both factories, as in 30 kilometers distance in Brunswick, there was another plant, much smaller, but also belonging to Volkswagen Werk Limited. It was to provide the main plant with qualified workforce and tools and machinery, but also had been part of the German armament industry and produced military goods. It was Remi units, Royal Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, taken over the factory in the first days of June in 1945. Colonel McEvoy of Remi headquarters in Bad Oeynhausen had ordered to set up a repair shop at the factory. They followed this order and constructed a large workshop with, st uh, with storage vehicles and refurbished engines, but also German Wehrmacht vehicles were repaired as they became important for transportation. A map done by the Americans showed where in the surroundings of the factory stock was held, uh, which, could be now, which could now be gathered again. And so, in spite of the fact that the factory had been considerably damaged by Allied air raid attacks, machinery parts, stocks, and all the technical equipment were still at hand. Only Hall 3 was largely destroyed. 20% of the factory buildings were unusable. A further 14% were damaged but could be repaired. Of the equipment, only 8% were lost. Further 11% showed repairable damage. So at the end of June, production plans were made and the Remi members started to build 500 jeeps from the material available. They also started to construct agricultural machinery based on the jeep and utility trucks. But all these plans in summer 1945 were only thought to be contemporary. 
as the Allies wanted to bring Germany into a stage which never again would make it possible to start a war. They aimed at demilitarization, denazification, decentralization and democratization, which for the Volkswagen plant would have meant demolition, as none of the two plants had contributed anything at, uh, to peacetime economy before the war, as they had simply not been existed. So CCG was expected to use the plant temporarily and then clear it for dismantling. The former German Labour Front company was seized in accordance with the Allied Control Council Law Number 52. And the British took over custodial control until another decision was made by the Allies concerning the ownership on former Nazi organizations. Leslie E.D. Barber, an economist from the property control branch of the finance division in Berlin, was responsible for financial and property matters. And in December 1945, the division sent its representative, Alistair McInnes, to Wolfsburg. Colonel Charles Radcliffe, chief of the mechanical engineering branch of the industry division at the headquarter of the British zone in Minden, became responsible for all technological concerns. And a 29-year-old businessman and technician, Major Ivan Hurst, was entrusted by the British provincial headquarters in Hanover with the administration of the company. He started his new job in August 1945. And I think it's worth to spend one more, some more words on Hearst's person, because he's really important for Wolfsburg uh, yeah, in, in this time. He came from a family of entrepreneurs from Oldham near Manchester, and his family was running a factory for watches and clocks, and during the First World War also had made specialized mechanical equipment for the army. And so already as a child, Ivan Hearst uh, had had access to the factory and was familiar with such surroundings in such a place. He studied at Manchester College of Technology, choosing a profession which was associated to optician business and taking part in an Anglo-German exchange when studying, he visited Germany in the mid-30s. And he participated in the university's officer training camp and in following training camps. So at the age of 18, he was appointed second lieutenant in Saddleworth and Colne Valley Battalion of the Duke of Wellington's West Riding Regiment. Taking part in annual training camps, he was appointed lieutenant in 1937. When the war started, Hearst was called up. In 1940, he was in France at the age of 24. He found himself commanding a battalion of up to 800 soldiers as acting major. Following an illness, he had to have an operation, which put a damper to his promising career. And so he, began, he became an engineer in a repair shop for tanks near London in November 1941. Eleven months later, he became part of the Remi, which had been set up for facing the growing demands concerning the technical equipment of the army. After Germany had cap capitulated in May 1945, Remi was to supervise production at all important industrial sites besides its repair and maintenance task concerning the British vehicle vehicles and equipment. In the biography of Ivan Hurst, written by the German historian Ralf Richter and published in our series, Historical Notes, you can read more about this person and uh, learn more about his life before and after his time in Wolfsburg. But we are coming back to the British officials in 1945. So control officer Richard Berryman, in charge of production issues, stood at Hurst's side. He had worked for General Motors and so had some experience in automobile manufacturing. Karl Schmücker, a German uh, civilian who was appointed by the Allied Control Commission as he spoke English, he had been a prisoner of war under the English during the First World War, was also part of the team. He was a translator and liaison between German factory management and British officers. 
Soon it became obvious that the processes of governing and running the factory became extremely complex and Barber and Hearst decided to create a controlling team, the, the so-called Board of Control, joining representatives from all the departments of the British military government which were involved in administering the Volkswagen plant. Its first meeting was held on 21st of January 1946. From then on it met monthly to discuss basic questions. This instrument was very important because, uh, for the future because ideas and upcoming issues were discussed quickly and directly. The awareness of the British for the factory was kept high. Bureaucracy was avoided. At first, Colonel Radcliffe and Leslie Barber both were chairman. In 1948, Alexander Goff assumed the position of senior property control officer. In February uh, 1946, the team was completed when property control branch appointed Dr. Hermann Münch as the new chief custodian for the plant. He was an industrial lawyer and had been an opponent of the Nazi regime holding contacts to the Czech resistance movement. For Volkswagen, the British custodianship was a stroke of luck. The policy was pragmatic. With their own economy at the bottom, they were glad that the Volkswagen plant was able to help reduce their costs. And furthermore, it became, soon, it became clear soon that weakening Germany too much was not the interest of the Western allies, neither from a military point of view nor from an economical. They needed the country for rehabilitating Europe and thus the interest of the British to demolish the Volkswagen factory became smaller and smaller. It was not ideology that led the British decisions, but pragmatism. They were ready to promote those industrial sections which were important for peacetime economy, for the sake of reconstruction of Western Europe. And this meant to use the possibility offered by the factory as far as the transportation needs were concerned. A quick start of produ production offered the chance to solve transportation, misery and stop seizing German civilian vehicles. Together with this pragmatic attitude soon went an astonishing idea. The Germans should become part of the family of nations again and would be responsible again one day for their country. In order to prepare this, they would have to learn democracy and where better could this be done than in everyday life and in work. Colonel McEvoy was enthusiastic about this too. He was an automotive engineer and had seen the Volkswagen sedan at the International Automobile Exhibition in Berlin in early 1939. It was probably McEvoy who instructed the Remy officers in late July 1945 to discuss a project about producing 20,000 cars with a factory management. The cars should go to British military government and to German officials. Production, so the plannings, should start in December 1945 with 500 cars and should reach 2,000 cars per month by January 1946. It was now, as a first step, important to identify what was needed, material, personnel, transportation needs, and the definite plan for carrying this out. Ivan Hurst, who had arrived by early August, was as fond of this idea as McEvoy and supported it actively, as well as Bremann did. Hurst took an old KDF car, which he found on the factory ground, and painted it khaki before it was sent to Bad Oeynhausen Remy headquarters. McEvoy presented it there, and soon the military agency ordered Hurst to start with preparations of the manufacturing. Costs would be met by the Germans' occupation payments and thus not strain the British national budget. On August 10th, production of the Type 1 stood on the list of Volkswagen's current projects. The order demanded delivery of 20,000 Volkswagen, 500 special vehicles with trailers for postal service, 200 trailers for army needs. It is not too much to say that this order meant surviving for the factory. It was the restart of a company that, when started for the first time, was turned into armament production soon. 
It was also the foundation on which the promise of a real people's car later would come true for people in Germany and elsewhere. But obstacles were many. Planning was very optimistic and soon it became obvious that, for example, production capacities were not available as planned. Shortages of material, but also of coal for the power station made it impossible to make ends meet. Workers were not available and it was hard to find skilled workers. The fluctuation among the workforce was a problem that remained for years, uh, as a lot of people just took the factory as a stop on their way to the Rhein-Ruhr area where they thought to find better work. Housing and nutrition were problematic and uh, there was a significantly high quota of absences. The question whether the factory would be demolished one day caused uncertainty and denazification brought the threat of losing specially skilled people. Taking all this together, it is a miracle that cars were built at all and that a transformation process into a commercial enterprise could be successful. The main aims of the British occupation policy became democratization of the German society and the integration of Germany into the influence zone of the Western nations. The vision was not shared by many in the early years after the end of the war, as this meant to provide Germans with an economical base. And so it stood in contrast to the interest of dismantling the industry in wide range. Re-education and democratization were not the fields to act <coughs> as winners. They were connected with the uncertainty of losing in this attempt. The British were willing to face this and the Volkswagen factory offered a good chance to do so. On the other hand, this attitude was not popular everywhere in Britain either. The British Society of Motor Manufacturers and Trade, SMMT, regarded serial production of the um, Beetle as uneconomical and were the driving force for plans of dismantling. And also the level of industry plan published by the Allied Control Council in March 1946 wanted to bring the economy capacity to half the level of 1938, which meant that the Ford plant in Cologne would be sufficient for civil car production in the British zone. So the Volkswagen factory remained on the dismantling list. But this did not go together with the democracy building plans of the British. Democracy needed political and administrative structures and re-education became a key to change German attitude and perhaps mentality. The British understood democratization as a process which needed certain framing conditions, among them also an economical perspective. Hunger and poverty surely did not belong in this frame. In a city council meeting in March 1946, the British official McNeil summarized this, stating that British military government is here to help Germany and not to plunder and to show Germany how to become democratic and to administer justice. In a time when rumors of dismantling became louder, he, start, he stated, that they did not want to close down the factory, but to try to run it as best as they could. In the following months, the Americans more and more shared the British point of view, and after building the B zone, the level of industry plan was changed, increasing the number of private cars to be produced. This was a big sign of hope for the Volkswagen company. In this context, Ivan Hurst became one of the fulfillers of the British attempt of democratization. He and the other managers running the Volkswagen factory saw that not only cars could be built here, but also democracy. Like in the microcosm, Hearst started the transition from a Nazi Gefolgschaft to a democratic relationship among the workforce. Lack of material uh, prevented production and the fact that a lot of machinery and stock had been brought into the surroundings was also a problem. Some satellite plants, which acted as suppliers or smaller manufacturing workshops, were now lying in the Soviet zone. About one quarter of the relocated equipment was missing and equipment that had been in use during the war uh, was partly in poor conditions. 
So these were problems they had to face there day by day. But there had been an order in June 1945 that equipment had to be brought to the main plant in Wolfsburg as quickly as possible, and they announced that broken or stolen things had to be handed over, informing the mayors of the relocation places. And they also started to clean the factory from the war damage and restore it. But this, due to lack of reconstruction material, took time until 1949. When in July 1945 production of the military govern government had begun, it soon became obvious that a lack of workforce was another prominent obstacle they had to face. There were only 1,259 workers on the staff among the 244 who ran the power plant, and 345 working at enterprises belonging to Volkswagen, like the Brunswick factory. So in July, Remy asked whether, for example, 1,000 skilled people from prisoner of war camps at Munster could be taken at factory workforce. The British headquarter allowed this, and by August it was managed to increase workforce to almost 3,000 workers, also by recruiting people in the entire British zone. British denazification, denazification policy and the shortage of workforce led to a conflict of interest soon. The Allies wanted to achieve that by denazification a renewed militaristic aggression would not occur in Germany and so every person was to fill out a questionnaire and undergo a certain procedure before being allowed to take over a certain job. Security interests of Britain demanded this consisting process. On the other hand, there were its economical interests and the circumstances in the large British zone with the industry at Rhein-Ruhr and uh, as well in very big rural parts and a population that saw refugees coming in from the eastern parts of former Germany. This dilemma was not solvable. British pragmatism was perhaps the only way to face it and the fact that the Allies had not managed to establish common and binding guidelines how to handle their zones made it perhaps easier to find a British way. Hearst in Wolfsburg found himself in the middle of these problems. He saw his first interest in developing beetle production, but he had of course started denazification quietly and quickly already in autumn 1945. He had taken the questionnaires to Lüneburg himself, not handing them first to Gifhorn as in Lüneburg, they were preceded by public staff safety branch more quickly. In January, Hearst declared denazification had been completed at the factory. But this was only a first row, a second one followed in summer 1946, based on the directive number 24, which had been passed in January. It was to set standards for denazification in the three western zones. Factory manager Bremann, for example, and with him four other department heads and 228 uh, Volkswagen workers were dismissed then. The British appointed Münch as Bremann's successor on 17th of June 1946. Münch now was chief custodian and factory manager in one person. Denazification decisions hit hard, at least in some departments, and the mood of the workforce was rather gloomy. Uncertainty of the future, the difficulty in replacing qualified people who had to leave, all this caused a reduction of production numbers. Especially the dismission of Bremann, a technical expert whose know-how was highly appreciated by Hearst, left a gap which could only be filled when Nordhoff was appointed. But back to 1945, besides adverse conditions as described, the serial production of the Volkswagen Beetle started on December 27, 1945. Until then, the factory had to produce jeeps for British military government, and now the first 55 Beatles rolled off the assembly line between Christmas and New Year's Day. Compromise and improvisation, pragmatism, had made this possible. 
It was announced that about 1,000 cars should be produced per month from then on, but although the number of cars produced stayed far behind this, and the 1,000th car, as you can see, could only be celebrated in March 1946, by the way, with Hearst driving it down the production line, the mere fact that production took place was a real success. After the Board of Control had taken up its work in January 1946, it watched over the developing of the plant in Wolfsburg into a competing enterprise. It was responsible for various decisions and was well prepared as its members could bring in a profound know-how. And up, up, to, up to then, the factory had only faced the British military government needs. Now the market came into sight and its demands became more and more important. First of all, the production process had to be improved. Lack of tool-making facilities was a problem and the mechanical department was in the focus. Still at the end of 1946, the production process was not a flow, but faced interruptions and improvisations. This led to low productivity and high prices for a beetle. Plant managers were ordered by McInnes to reduce costs in order to run the factory in a financially healthy and profitable course. The winter of 1946-47 brought an energy crisis, not only caused by problems in mining enough coal, but also by waterways being blocked with ice. They were simply frozen and that for a very long time. The factory still suffered from the consequence of the Allied air raid attacks as well and of low transportation capacity of the Reichsbahn. Raw material and other goods could simply not reach the factory. When production could be taken up again in March 1947, the factory was far behind the announced production figures. In the following years, also restoring the factory halls brought its share in making the production process more fluent, providing place for machinery and storage and by installing conveyor facilities for quicker transportation. Also vital for the profitability was establishing a sales organization in April 1946. Oskar Kemmler was charged as sales manager. He had worked as a member of the executive committee of a metallurgical plant in Gleiwitz, Upper Silesia, before. He led sales management out of the responsibility of the financial department, making it a department of its own and thus emphasizing the importance of this field. After some struggle to hand over more administrative work to German hands in order to reduce costs of the British administration, but also in order to bring Germans into responsibility on August 1st, 1947, the Board of Control passed a resolution to create an executive committee for the Volkswagen factory consisting of Chief Custodian Münch, Sales Manager Kemmler and Technical Director Steinmeier. Lack of workforce kept being a problem when in 1946 and 47 reorganization of the Volkswagen Werk Limited was in the focus of the British officers. As there was no proper housing and people had to queue up for daily life goods on the black market or organize acquisitions, for example, of coal or wood for the winter, of anything they needed for the household and for nutrition, absentism was still very high and productivity was low. People were not fed properly and sometimes this led to moments of weakness and illness. It was the currency reform from June 1948 that improved the situation. There was no black market anymore and money could be used not only as means of payment but also as means of motivation. Later, in 1949, also the problem of housing shortage was worked on as Volkswagen Werk uh, took up negotiations with the state of Lower, Lower Saxony with the aim to build apartment blocks uh, and housing facilities for workers and their families. Because many of them still lived in barracks or in totally overcrowded flats. 
The British not only started production for providing themselves, the other allies and few German administrative functions with cars, it became obvious that, that this car now was sellable, but uh, that it was necessary to build up dealership structures, a service for customers, including spare parts, production and to improve quality. Karl Feuereisen, who had worked for Auto Union and Porsche before, was appointed manager of the customer service department by Hearst in October 1945. This department was supported by Remy Repair Shop, as it maintained a customer service center for the British Army. In summer 1946, a sales and service organization was started when the, in when the increase of production demanded by the British made a sale of civilian customers possible. Then the supply with spare parts and sufficient service capacities would be urgent for a successful market rollout. Feuereisen presented a concept consisting of main distributors for a special area and subsidiaries working as independent contractors. You can see it on this map. Uh, for the start, the sales network of distri distributors should be wide, but it could be worked out in the future. The Volkswagen factory should only have direct business contact to the area representatives and the dealers should be appointed jointly by the company and the area representatives. They were responsible for supply advice and supervision of the dealerships. Roaming inspectors from the company would travel around for checkup. On 26th of October 1946, 10 wholesalers and 28 subsidiaries were appointed by the, highway and by the highways and highway transport branch. An area representative for Berlin was appointed in early December. Already in August 1946, a mobile service unit had been established consisting of two engineers. It was their task to train the workshop personnel of the new dealerships, they advised the dealers in issues of maintenance and repair, and they subjected them to strictly quality controls. They also checked the technical equipment, the financial soundness, and the reputation of the dealers at their sites. They maintained contact with the British agencies and the German dealers and reported about their visits. The reports reflected the consequences of the scarcity and provisional solutions for problems. Spare parts lists were lacking, as well as spare parts and special tools. There was no sketch for making uh, advertising signs, technical and administration, administrative communication failed, and informational circular letters did not find their ways to the dealers. Anticipating civil business, also the internal structure of the company changed. Sales division, up to then subordinated to finance department, shifted to the main division customer service at the end of 1946. Customer service now was subdivided into spare parts division, technical department and customer service training center. This had started training programs in February 1946 for Britons and Germans, especially for employees of Reichsbahn and Reichspost, uh, but also for assemblymen and the contracted workshop. The technical department informed about impro improvements and changes that had been made and sent out a total of 24 customer service letters in 1946, which not only described the changes, but also provided the workshop with repair tips. The repair handbook from 1947 provided a systematic guide to repair a Volkswagen and was made as a support for customer care in the repair shops. In addition to that, occurring faults were compiled in a catalogue based on a monthly analysis of warranty cases from 1947 on. Of the approximately 3,300 faults of the first six months of 1947, the most important ones were reported to the technical management in order to find solutions. The fact that the chronic undersupply with spare parts lasted provided the spare parts division with a strategic position. 
but although warehouse management became more, more efficient and a new subdivision used parts processing unit was established, the supply with spare parts remained to be a problem as sales figures were rising rapidly. The deliveries of spare parts had doubled in 1947, up to 50,000 parts a month. A customer service repair shop started its work in early 1947, completed the international the internal organizational structure for sales and service. At first a kind of mixture between vehicle repair and testing service, it compensated insufficient customer service provided by some dealers. Very soon the Volkswagen would have to compete with cars of other manufacturers, so the management tried to improve service. A first step was, to, was a close communication with the dealers who should express experiments, experiences from their repair shops and help to find solutions for problems. From mid-1947 on, there were regular meetings held with dealers who were informed about current business developments and dis district inspections in the British and French zone to supervise the repair shops as direct contacts. These measures not only helped to solve several problems, but also implemented a trusting partnership between the company and its dealers, which is also a very important point, I think. When the fusion of the British and American zone came in sight, an expansion of the sales structure over the American zone was planned. Also in the French zone, after some struggles, a sales network could have been established with the decision of the French military government in February 1948, so that the end of this year, at the end of this year, the three western zones profited from this network. 234 dealers supplied nearly 19,600 cars. Deliveries to the Allies had rapidly declined after the currency shift from 1948. Now it was the private market, public institutions, agencies making up the core business. Selling the car to the market had begun, and again, the organizational structure had to be adapted. A new group, Market Observation and Statistics, was founded. Its task was to collect information about Volkswagen and its customers to pass over to the trade organization. Quality gained strategic meaning and the British trustees were well aware of this. In order not to endanger the re reputation of the Volkswagen at the very moment when it entered the roads, uh, efforts were taken to, for example, reduce noise, to deliver the cars with proper paint, to avoid rust problems, to make doors and huts close properly, and to stop the lenses on the headlights and on the inside lights to pop off due to excessive tension. When serial production had been started, a high number of faults and a variety of complaints arose and the car's appearance only showed a low aesthetic impression. Hearst believed that the faults indicated that inspection during the individual production stages was insufficient and he had started immediately in early 1946 to establish a quality control system including a fault response system that would urge to concentrate on every single fault appearing. An inspection unit should be subordinated under the German factory management. It was Helmut Orlich, a former Opel manager from Rüsselsheim, who took up the position as chief inspector. But also the material used for building the car had to be of as high quality as possible. For this reason, the laboratory had to be equipped better to test solutions, for example for paint problems, and also qualified personnel had to be recruited. But improvisations remained necessary for many months as lack of quality in material and machinery, worker shortages and the poor physical condition of the workers set limits to this struggle for quality. After the inspection department had arranged for stricter conditions, which went into effect in March 1947, a review in May showed initial success. 
especially the sales department had demanded improvements in quality as the company soon was to start first exports and this increased the pressure. First himself pushed forward quality, quality policy in order to make Volkswagen fit for entering the European automobile market. Eliminating faults and improving the car and the equipment without changing the design were characteristic for this second phase of struggling for quality. Nevertheless, the inspection department was not properly equipped. It lacked appropriate instruments and skilled personnel. It paid less than other departments, which made it hard to recruit qualified workers. And the inspection department remained being unloved by others. Just because of its task, faults were hidden, its decisions were played down and simply disregarded. It took until the end of 1947 that the quality really improved and changes of the car's design, of the material used and of production processes really started to show effects. At this point of time, export had already started with the first cars to the Netherlands. SMMT President Roots judged the, Brit the Beetle version manufactured during the war was too ugly and too loud. And he added, an automobile like this will remain popular for two or three years, if at all. On the other hand, exporting German goods was helpful for the British national budget. The British faced a financial burden to finance the war. The, uh, they had sold most of their foreign holdings and found themselves now pumping their dwindling dollar reserves into purchase of food and material for their occupation zone, when at the same time the British population was subject to food rationing. The negotiations for establishing a B-zone out of British and American zones started in July 1946. This should also bring costs down by reducing the administration apparatus. Contribu contributions to the costs by German industry was another chance. So they increased production levels in their zone and the Volkswagen factory, which was still on the demolition list, started to play an important role for their future plans. Leslie Barber from Property Control Branch traveled to London in June 1946 in order to explain a plan to the control office of, for German and Austria to the British government. Instead of dismantling the Wolfsburg plant, it should produce cars in the Volkswagen factory for sale to the British military government and for German domestic consumption, 2,500 cars per month. The inhabitants of Wolfsburg were depending on this factory, he said. And, um, here there were no other possibilities of work for them in this region. The chairman of the National Savings Committee, Gibson, went even further, suggesting to expand production in order to sell cars abroad and overseas. In July 1946, he presented to the British Minister of Treasury, Hugh Dalton, his idea, pointing out that for a limited period of time, two years, export of the Volkswagen to Switzerland and Sweden under British control would help prevent US automobile brands to fill a gap of lacking cars in Europe, while the British automobile companies would gain some time to recover and adjust to the demand of the European market. A conflict of interests in British policy is obvious. On the one hand, foreign ministry, the Ministry of Treasury and the military government urged for exports. On the other hand, both the trade and the supply ministry were against this in their wish to protect the domestic automobile industry. They feared that a higher production level of German industry would lead to shortages of raw material, as for example sheet steel in Britain itself. When the B-Zone had been set up, the bipartite control office revised the level of industry plan and not only was the danger of dismantling stopped for another four years, but also did export plans for the Volkswagen become realistic. 1,000 cars should be made for British military government, the same number for export business. 
but soon it became obvious that the scarcity of steel was a big problem. Belgian steel mills were working at their maximum just for providing the British automobile industry with steel. Sales on the international black market, where the Volkswagen would have reached a price up to 30,000 Reichsmark, were strictly prohibited by the Board of Control. Instead, exporting via representative importers was an option and would lead to a sustainable foreign business. British and American administration had founded the Joint Export-Import Agency, JIA, in Frankfurt am Main in December 1946, which started its work when the B-Zone had been established. It was to promote the export of German goods and use the proceeds for financing the import of desperately needed food and scarce material. Jaya was also responsible for the export of Volkswagen and was willing to buy material abroad in order to improve quality standards in painting and upholstery for those cars that were to be exported. On the first Hanover trade fair, by the way it was established by the British as well, and with the permission of the custodians, the Volkswagen factory and the Dutch, companies, uh, Dutch company um, Pons Automobile Handel of Amersfoort signed the first importer agreement. I think you can uh, see it here, signing these contracts with Ben Pon at Hanover Trade Show. Following this contract, it became necessary to specify and describe design and features of the export car and set a standard before in, uh, before in early October 1947. The first five cars were delivered to Ben Pon and thus starting Germany's post-war automobile export business. Although the factory and the military government had to face serious problems concerning the delivery of supply with material and the number of cars that had been planned to be built could not be reached, altogether 47 cars were exported to the Netherlands that year. And the British custodians arranged for further export options to other European countries. Belgium, Switzerland and the Scandinavian countries were interested and had hard currency to spend. The British decided for general importers in these countries and had established the setting for, uh, for approving export agreement in a, longer, in a longer and in the eyes of the new general manager Heinrich Nordhoff, far too bureaucratic process. He tried to gain more freedom of action on this field of export and wanted to be responsible for negotiation with agencies, for contracting and for all daily business questions. In June 1948, he had reached his aim and Volkswagen factory was able to lead negotiations with future general importers without JIA authorities, but with a representative of JIA joining the meetings. Export business became a strong foundation for the factory and the volume of the contracts amounted to more than 15,000 vehicles until the currency reform. In July 1949, the price of the Standard Beetle was reduced from 5,300 to 4,800 D-Mark, the price of the export model from 800 to 650 dollars. It had always been the aim to turn back the factory into German hands. And forming a company management in August 1947 was an important step in this context. The management would face a situation in which the Allies would need less cars and so it was necessary to find persons who were uh, capable not only of running a factory but also of developing a strategy for sales in Germany and exports. Hermann Münch, a commercial lawyer, surely was not the right person for being general manager after the withdrawal of the British. Hearst was looking for someone with technical expertise plus leadership qualities and if possible also with at least some understanding of the American and or British way of life. This man was found in the person of 47-year-old Heinrich Nordhoff 
He had been trained as a mechanical engineer and had worked in the General Motors subsidiary <coughs> Adam Opel AG in Rüsselsheim as manager of the technical department of customer service in 1929. During the war, he had become manager of a truck factory in Brandenburg and as the head of Opel's office in Berlin and as chairman of a special commission for three-ton vehicles in the Central Committee for Motor Vehicles, he also had contacts with decision makers in policies and Wehrmacht. Although he had not been member of the NSDAP, he achieved the rank of a Wehrwirtschaftsführer, war industry leader, and according to the American guidelines of denazification, he had been dismissed. Unemployed since the end of 1946, he had taken over a position as a manager of customer service at an Opel agency in Hamburg, when Hearst invited him to Wolfsburg for an interview. On November 7, 1947, the Board of Control appointed Nordhoff as general manager, requesting that he should take up his position as soon as possible. Münch, who was not informed about this in advance, and Nordhoff agreed to form a management team together with Steinmeier, but on November 25, 1947, Münch was dismissed as general manager by Hearst and control officer Neil, which was a bitter and disappointing experience to him. It seems, and this is the conclusion of Markus Luper in his book, Changing Lanes, that the British did not need Münch anymore, who undoubtedly had been the right person for establishing a running factory. But now they had found a knot of the person to continue under market aspects, which put cost structures and efficiency into the focus. The loyalty to Münch was smaller than the feeling that now he was no longer useful. When Nordhoff had taken over, the British management retreated into the background and Nordhoff was gained autonomy and freedom in running the factory. He was very much concerned about the long-term survival of Volkswagen as a company, as during the months before the currency reform, stagnation was all around. The currency reform in June, on, on June 20th, 1948, changed the western part of Germany significantly. Overnight, all kinds of goods were available and shown on the shop displays. A Volkswagen could be ordered for 5,300 mark and, theoretically, was delivered only eight, eight days later. The black market disappeared and reliable cost calculations and conduct investment planning and together with the measures revoking the rationing and price control initiated, this led to price-driven markets. The enormous demand for goods in Europe, especially regarding automobiles, was a boom factor which catapulted Volkswagen into success. The future legal form of the Volkswagen factory had been an issue of discussion. The British authorities, that was common knowledge, wanted to put it back into German hands. The property control branch voted for a public company. A trust company should be established, which included representatives from the state and federal government. On the board, in the board of directors were representatives from the union and various state governments. By this, Volkswagen should become a democratically controlled industrial enterprise. This idea was rejected by the industry division, which did not agree with its socializing aspects. So it would have been easiest to follow Control Council Law Number 50, passed in April 1947, which stated that all assets of the German labor front should be handed over to the state governments as long as they did not belong to a union, cooperative association or charitable organization. But the Volkswagen factory had been expressly excluded from this law by the military government, which kept control of it itself. One reason was the right to ownership, which the German unions had reclaimed. This claim was left open by the military government, which did not quite share this union's view. In July 1949, the property control branch offered direct control over the Volkswagen factory to the state of Lower Saxony, but its government, formed under a social democratic uh, prime minister, Heinrich Kopf, declined uh, on account to the uncertain liabilities of the company. 
It would prefer the role of a custodian under the auspices of the future federal government. When a conservative administration under Konrad Con Adenauer was elected and the control of the factory was likely to be handed over to the federal government, conservative federal government uh, of economic affairs Ludwig Erhard, the state government changed its attitude. It now feared that this could crush the factory by liberal economic policy. Now they claimed responsibility and dividing authority between the state, Lower Saxony, and the federal government. The British military government responded to this by Decree 202. It transferred the control of the factory to the state of Lower Saxony on the condition that it would be exercised together with and under the direction of the federal government of Germany. This construction of two different authorities left much space and did not clear the ownership of the company, which was to last for another decade. Nevertheless, on October 8, 1949, Colonel Radcliffe handed over the custodianship of the Volkswagen factory to the federal government, signing the documents in Erhard's uh, Ministry of Economic Affairs. Ludwig Erhard was joining the ceremony of the federal government. He's the man on the right. Uh, perhaps you think uh, you know him in other dimensions because he came, became much thicker then in the 1960s, <laughs> uh, but he, he's still slim then. Um, with him, there was a Lower Saxon Deputy Assistant Undersecretary Edgar Haverbeck, it's the man standing on the, other, on the other side, on the left, for the state of Lower Saxony. The federal government transferred the administration of the company, which was to be exercised under its authority, to the state of Lower Saxony. A memorandum of the Control Commission British Element listed the assets of the Volkswagen factory and stated the workforce of 10,000 people, the monthly production of four to 5,000 vehicles and about 30 million D-mark cash reserve, which were made since the currency reform. The perspective could not have been better. So we heard a lot about cars now, uh, didn't speak much about democracy, and that's uh, why I would like to come on this Workers' Council uh, topic uh, concerning democracy now, in the last part. The development of a workers' council representing the employees' interest started as provisional arrangement. The first body of representatives had been formed by the British through initiative of social democrats and communists within the workforce. The British military government had permitted the founding of such a council consisting of seven workers. But this council did not have any rights of co-determination or any influence on personnel decisions or anything else. The British officers at works were aware of the, the importance of such a committee, giving a voice to the interest of workers and expressing the willingness to take over responsibility while doing first small steps towards democracy. It was needed as a contact and intermediary committee helping to solve the problems arising from the workforce recruited among prisoners of war and displaced persons and people all over the British zone. It helped minimize potential of conflict and integrate new recruited staff into the workforce. It also helped to set up the feeling of justice and a certain possibility of participation. Hearst personally established a new work and leadership style based on cooperation and participation, taking the workers into responsibility besides the management. He had an open door for those who wanted to inform him about problems or offer solutions. Even before the military government had issued a regulation concerning the forming of a workers' council, Hearst had initiated the first elections to be held in October 1945. This transformed the provisional council into a democratic elected one. It consisted of 12 people now, among them two KPD members. 
Although the British government demanded strict rules and regulations for the Workers' Council's work, and although the agenda of each meeting had to be presented to Hearst in advance for approval, although the members of the management were allowed to participate in the meetings of the committee, and although discussions about policies and the running of the factory were strictly forbidden, this was the first democratically elected council soon becoming a consistent and important power in solving common problems of the company. With no co-determination nor participation rights, the Workers' Council was limited to company internal, mainly social issues. A support fund established in March 1946 is a good example for its field of action. Each worker could make a contribution of 50 Pfennig per month, per month, thus also obtaining the right to get money from this fund in case he was in need. In times of great financial problems, which many people had to face and under the prevailing circumstances of the early afterwar years, this was an important means of help. Still today, such a fund exists, providing money to those who are in need. In April 1946, the Allied Works Council law mm, was enacted and the Volkswagen Council urged Hearst to effect the now legally fixed co-determination rights and it went its first organizational steps into this direction. A commission was installed to review appointments and dismissals in order to influence personnel decisions. In July, a wage committee was set up to provide advice along with the union concerning tariff negotiations in the Volkswagen factories. But the Board of Control hesitated and Hearst himself rejected its further particip participation after calling the council members uh, to a meeting of the production commission in June 1946, explaining afterwards that this had not been successful. Of course, this led to protests as the works council law gave them the right to make suggestions. In the second half of 1946, General Manager Münch was looking for a constructive and balanced way. He, being responsible for the Workers' Council making progress in questions of co-determination, understood that um, it had to achieve aims in working productivities or in shifting payment agreements or in changing of shifts when introducing a Saturday shift, for example, uh, when the working hours were increased from 42.5 to 48 hours per week. Although the Workers' Council rejected, objected this, Pointing at the demanding conditions, it was willing to find a compromise as the threat of closing down the factory if production could not be increased was at hand. The promise of better rations and better food, especially vegetable from the farms belonging to Volkswagen, made this promise possible, compromise possible. For the Workers' Council, this meant to be respected as a partner and to be in a stronger position than before. Co-determination rights for appointments and dismissals were granted in August and September 1946. The new Workers' Council elected in October was allowed to determine its own task in accordance with the new Works' Council law. The activities of the Workers' Council was influenced by the economy of scarcity and by the high level of fluctuation and structure of the staff. Only few of the employees had experiences with the union's work, and most of them had been socialized under the Nazi regime. They were not familiar with democratic principles. The staff showed lack of organization as they simply did not understand the meaning of unions and co-determination. As there was no functional and trusted core staff to take care for recruitment and for advertising, the workers' councils work. In addition to this, bigger parts of the staff showed an anti-democratic attitude. This led to low interest for the work of the workers' council and to low participation in the first elections. Only 62% participated at all and about 20% of the votes were invalid. With improvements concerning nutrition and providing workers with nece necessary but rare goods like clothing, shoes or household articles, heating materials and so on, the Workers' Council showed 
in the following months and years that it was an important player making the distribution of scarce goods more transparent and just. It also achieved payment improvements and gained a certain influence on appointments and dismissals. Münch was very cooperative and saw himself and the workers' council as partners. Regulations could be achieved in a consented manner. An example is the company agreement negotiated between February and March 1947. Control Council Law Number 22 concerning the co-determination had served as a guideline. Together with the new work rules from the 10th of March 1947, it went into effect, securing the Council full rights according to the Allied Works Council Law. Co-determination was included now for appointments and dismissals for transfers, wages and salary questions, and for changes in operations. The factory kitchen and the distribution of food grown in the factory's own farms was also covered and the company agreement even granted the council the right of participation in setting the production plan and access to business files. This was a big step forward for the council as their rights were valid validated. It is a proof for the British deep trust into democracy that they were able to stand right-wing also Nazi attitudes among the workers' council in the following years. In this, it was a mirror of the German society at that time, where Nazi thinking was widely accepted. People were brought up with these thoughts and any re-education would need time. With Heinrich Nordhoff taking over as general manager on 1st of January 1948, a man was installed with clearly paternalistic attitude. His relationship towards the Workers' Council was less based on the wish of finding consent, but he himself tried to gain an alliance with the staff, he himself not over the Workers' Council by means of that. In the first months under Nordhoff, the Council's backing among, among the staff had dwindled with the result that the chain, chain, chances opened by the company agreement were not fully taken. Nordhoff was very popular among the workforce. Critic was rare. It took until the early 1950s when Hugo Borg, as chairman of the Council, uh, began to define its role anew. This was on the threshold of the so-called economic miracle when a growing prosperity marked the, chance, the, ch the change from the Council's policy of administering the distribution of scarce goods into a policy of participation on a material level. Rise of income and better working conditions became important now. So I would like to come to the summary now. The success of Volkswagen has a very strong, Brit has a very strong British root. During their trusteeship, the British had laid the foundation and initiated all that was necessary with a perspective reaching extremely far. They not only just made the factory produce cars and sell them, they also cared for the product and its quality. Under varying demand, very demanding conditions, they made people to be able to work and find a perspective for their private lives, which also led to a perspective for the factory and for the company. The British very early started looking for the right strategy to produce and sell, for example, by market observation. Not only Hearst, but also the other officers at works and in the administration showed a great passion for what they were doing and pragmatism. Re-education and democracy were not intellectual efforts. They had, to be prove, they had to prove their worth in everyday life under demanding conditions and in real trouble. And also important, the British choose the right people for management positions on the British and on the German side as can be seen in the persons of, for example, Hearst and Nordhoff. Heinrich Nordhoff was not the, the man to be thankful for this. He started to create his own myth, soon neglecting the achievements of the British, and this led to forgetting this part of our common history for a while. 
The success of the factory in Wolfsburg, let me say this, was not a success by accident or a lucky surprise. It had its origin in strategy and planning started by the British immediately after they took over trusteeship. This made Volkswagen a German enterprise and a British success. And uh, what you can see here is what I really like uh, are two documents from our archives. Um, this is a yeah, certificate given to Hearst on the occasion of his birthday. Dem tatkräftigen britischen Offizier, Herrn Major Hearst, dem Wiederaufbauer des Volkswagenwerks, uh, zum Geburtstag. Mit allen guten Wünschen. So it's for the uh, active British officer, uh, Major Ivan Hearst, who uh, kind of uh, erected Volkswagenwerk, um, given to his birthday. Uh, with all good wishes. And the other, on the right-hand side, the expert driver is a real very nice document showing a kind of, um, yeah, giving, giving like, a, like a dictionary, for example, showing pictures uh, and explaining in English and in German what you can see, how you care for your Volkswagen, uh, how you drive it, all these things. Uh, the expert driver, der sichere VW-Fahrer, and yeah, it's really nice, and you can see it was uh, done by the British CCG BE is written uh, in the, at the bottom. So yeah, thank you very much for your attention. This talk was recorded on the 11th of July, 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives, this podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.